Oh, good morning. My name is Glenn Gresham, and I'm a PCA chaplain. If I haven't met you or seen you before, stationed down at Peterson. And like many of you, we had family in for Thanksgiving. I introduced them all by name last time, but actually we have several more here today. We have our oldest, Katie, who's a school teacher in Nashville, and Jacob, who's also in the Air Force, stationed down at Kirtland, and his wife, Marissa. It's a privilege to be asked to come back and bring the word again, so I guess it went all right last time. So, if you would please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. If you were here last time, I preached from the end of uh, Mark chapter 5, where Jesus healed the, the woman in the crowd, and then he also healed Jairus' daughter, and, and then we're picking up the narrative after that in Mark chapter 6. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. If any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, as we read this account in your word, we're kind of struck, struck by the fact that the people in Jesus' own hometown didn't recognize him and wouldn't give him the honor that he was given in other parts. And in fact, they had great unbelief. Oh Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. Lord, help our unbelief. Help us to believe. And to really, truly know and understand you and the gospel. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you all watched American Idol back when it was on. We would watch it probably most every season. And as it got towards the end, if you noticed, if you remember the the top three contestants or whatever, they would always send them back to their hometown. 
And there would be parades, and they would, they would fly in on, on their own, like, private jet. And they, inevitably, they'd go back to their high school, and they'd have these big rallies, and everybody was cheering, and they're holding up signs, and they would do parades, just the whole nine yards, welcoming their hometown idol back. Uh, Jesus didn't experience that. He had been up in Capernaum just before this, which is about 20 miles away, and, and he came back to his hometown in Nazareth. And, and as it was his custom, he went into the synagogue on Sabbath, and they asked him to teach. It's interesting, Luke, in Luke's account of this, in Luke chapter 4, is where we read that uh, they handed him the scroll, and he read from that passage of, from Isaiah, and then he said, This day... These words are fulfilled in your hearing. And, and you can see the credulity of the people. And they begin to ask questions. Like they, they, they acknowledge that he taught with authority as none that they had ever heard before. But they also knew that Jesus did not go to Harvard or Yale. Jesus did not go to the best schools. Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus was a builder. He probably made a, maybe some of the furniture, some of the stuff in these people's homes. And they knew who he was. Some commentators even point out by some of the tone that is in there, there might have even been some spurious comments about, was Jesus even actually Joseph's son? And Jesus goes back to Nazareth and he faces all of this incredulity. And, and the people in the, in the synagogue, they start saying, look at this. Who is, who is this? Don't, isn't he the carpenter? The son of Mary and his brother James and Joseph, Judas and Simon. Now those were his actual brothers. There are some within the Christian tradition that say that Mary was a perpetual virgin and, and that she didn't have any other children. But the scripture is very plain. Jesus had brothers and sisters. In fact, in Scripture, it tells us that at one point, his family, even his family didn't believe him. But then later on, his brother James becomes a leader in the early church. So this is the Jesus that we see. This is the Jesus that we have here. It's funny, I read several different commentaries on this passage, and all of them use the ter- that phrase that we use, familiarity breeds contempt. That they thought they knew who Jesus was, because they had seen him grown up, because they knew of his trade as a builder, as a carpenter. But familiarity is not the same thing as knowledge. I had a... a, a well... So I live with native Spanish speakers. I am familiar with Spanish, but I do not know Spanish. And probably some of you have that same experience. It's one thing to be familiar with something. But it's quite another thing to know them. And I think part of the issue, one of the issues we have in the Christian church, in Christian families, can be that we raise our families with a familiarity with Christ but without emphasizing real knowledge of Christ. Some parts of the region, so I, I grew up, uh, I call the Southeast home, and, and there's still a very real element of cultural Christianity there. Everybody, well, almost everybody, claims to be a Christian. 
But if you look at their lives, they don't really live it. There's a familiarity, but not a real knowledge. I came across this quote from C.S. Lewis. He re- this is from his uh, The Weight of Glory. He said, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Think too often we are too easily pleased, too easily satisfied with our superficial knowledge of Christ. The Christ who calls us to fall into him and to explore the depths and the the immensity of his grace and his love and his mercy. Something we can spend our whole lives doing and can never even begin to plumb the depths of what God has done for us in Christ. We are too easily pleased and too easily satisfied with mud pies. Mark doesn't relate it, but Luke points out that, do you know what the people's response in the synagogue were? They got so angry that they wanted to, they, they, they expelled him and pushed him out and were going to try, they actually took him up to the brow of the hill and they were going to push him off and try to kill him. They were so angry that this Christ was coming in and saying these things. And isn't that the response when we talk to people who aren't believers? Unless God is working in their heart, they don't want to know about their sin. They don't want to know about the good news. They don't want to know about eternal life. They don't want to know that they are not God. And so Mark points out that in verse 5, he said he could do no mighty work there. Except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I was kind of puzzled by this. Like, how, how could that be? But then as I studied it, it came realized because of their unbelief, the people were not bringing the people there for Christ to heal them. If you notice in the other accounts in the Gospels, there was always a line of people. They were always bringing their sick to him to heal. They're always bringing him the demon possessed to cast out. But here in his hometown, his own people... Because of their unbelief, they would not even bring those who were sick to Christ to be healed. Can I ask you this morning, do you believe or are you in unbelief? Do you believe that Christ is who he said he was? Who he is? Do you believe that he is Emmanuel, God with us? You know, next Sunday starts the first Sunday and it will be the first Sunday in Advent as we begin into the formal Christmas season on the, on the church calendar. I know you've been in stores probably since Labor Day you've been hearing Christmas carols, but really and truly it starts next week. And then it says he went on and, and, and he marveled because of their unbelief. There's, there's, there's one other passage that talks about Christ marveling. And it's in Luke chapter 7 when the centurion 
sends someone to Christ and asks him to come and heal his servant. And the and as Jesus starts to go, the centurion sends another servant and says, No, 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 no. Don't don't come. I am not worthy. You just say the word. He said, I too am a man under authority, and I tell my soldiers to go here and go there, and they go. And you, you just give the word, and my servant will be healed. And it, Scripture says that Jesus marveled at the centurion's belief. He said, there's no one in Israel that has such faith. So he marvels at faith, and he marvels at unbelief. And if Jesus were standing in front of you today, would he be marveling at your faith or at your unbelief? It would be one or the other. And from then he goes on, he goes out among the villages. And he sends out the twelve. He sends them out two by two and authority over unclean spirits. And as we read, about not taking any provisions. And it, we have to be very careful when we read Scripture that we do not see what God, how God has acted, what Christ did in those historical events to take that as a rule for what we're supposed to do now. There are some that would claim, oh, okay, now look at this passage. Um, you know, we're all supposed to live in poverty. And that's not what it is at all. It was for this specific reason and this specific time, Christ told them, hey, don't take any baggage with you. Just go for a short, basically a short time. You're going to go out for a short time preaching and healing. And then come back. Trusting completely in God's providence to, to provide for you. It's interesting because later on, on the night that he died, what did he tell his disciples to do? He said, bring money and bring a sword. And so the disciples go out, and they, he, he, tells, he gives them this curious command. He said, enter and stay there until you depart. If they will not receive you and they will not listen, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. When devout Jews left the lands of Israel and they were coming back in, when they left the Gentile territory as they crossed over the border, they would take off their shoes or their sandals and shake the dust off of it because they didn't want to bring anything that was unholy into the Holy Land. And Christ is, is signifying the same thing to these, to these people. If they, if they welcome you, great. If they don't, then shake the dust off of your shoes as a symbol of God's rejection of them, of the symbol of them rejecting what God was giving to them bringing to them. And they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Now that is just a, a brief summation. If we turn over to Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, you have the fullness of what it was they were saying. The time was fulfilled. This is Christ speaking. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance in the gospel is always, it's twofold. It is the negative. It is the turning away from what is evil, from what is wrong. But it's also in the positive, a turning towards what God offers. True repentance 
involves, involves the mind, the will, and the emotions. In our mind, we must come to the point of the horrendous things that we've done against God. That we become aware of the heinousness of our sin in front of a holy God. And then emotionally, we have to embrace that and, and, and be sorry for what we've done and feel this emotional sadness and, 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 and that we have grieved a holy God. And with our will, we change and, and follow after God and embrace what he has called us to do. To live in glad subjection to the word of God. To do the things that he has called us to do. So this is the repentance that leads to life. This is the repentance that is talked about over and over in Scripture. It's foreshadowed or, or talked about in the Old Testament when the prophets would call the people to repent after the, they were following after the false gods. And Christ comes calling for repentance. John the Baptist called for repentance. The apostles called for repentance. Over and over and over again it is this becoming aware of how we have sinned against a holy God. And embracing his forgiveness that is in Christ. So that's a once for all thing at the beginning of our salvation is that repentance. But brothers and sisters, we should live daily in repentance of our sin. Because day after day after day, we sin against a holy God. We sin against God and we don't even know it. His holiness, his standards, his purity is so great that we, we cannot fathom that in our sin-darkened minds. And day after day, we should call to God to repent, to reveal to us where we are sinning against Him. God in His graciousness does not reveal the full weight of our sin at the beginning of our journey. Only as we grow in Christ do we become more and more aware of, of the heinousness and the treachery that is in our hearts. One, I think as Martin Luther likened it to being dirty and, 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 and getting closer to the light. And the more the light shown, the more you are aware of, of your dirt. And yes, I mean, yes, positionally, Christ forgives us and we are clean. But we know that day after day, we sin. We sin in our hearts. We sin in our minds. We sin in the things that we do and in the things that we fail to do. And yet God is gracious, and he longs to forgive us. And Christ stands ready always to forgive. And this is, I don't know if you have children or if you were told growing up, you know, you would punch your brother or something, and your parents would say, oh, you know, now you apologize, and you go, well, you know, okay, I'm sorry. And you don't really mean it. It's not, that's not the kind of repentance It is a day-by-day coming to God, coming to the Word, and asking Him to reveal in us. And you know, when you really and truly repent, you really don't have to tell anyone because they can see it in, their li in your life. One of our holiday traditions is, while we're putting up the Christmas tree there around it, is, is we watch a Christmas carol. And our preference is for the old black-and-white Alastair Sims version. And 
you know at the end of the movie, if anybody hasn't seen it, spoiler alert, um, there's, when he changes after his confrontation, seeing what his life was like and what, what it could be, you saw it in his life and in his actions that he was a changed person. I'm not saying he became a Christian. I'm not going down the Christian allegory thing. I'm just saying that he, he is changed. And there is no doubt about it. And in fact, the book ends and it says something to the effect of, and, and no one ever kept Christmas as good as he did or something to that effect. And there was, there was a change in his life. True repentance brings about true change. And you don't have to go around telling everyone how much you've changed because they can see it in your life. So the disciples went out and proclaimed that they should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Contrasted with the people of Nazareth, the people in the towns and the villages where the disciples went welcomed the news. They welcomed the gospel. They welcomed what, what the healing. They welcomed the, 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 the gospel. Well, the people in Nazareth were not so welcoming. They did not accept him. Again, we have, it's always the either or. Where are you this morning? Are you one who welcomes the gospel and welcomes what Christ has done for you and what Christ offers you? Are you sitting here in unbelief, rejecting what Christ has done and what Christ has offered? Day after day after day, that's the choices that are out there. And, and, and Christ calls us, the Holy Spirit calls us in fact, there's a command uh, in one of uh, Paul's sermon over in Acts 17. The command is, he's commanding all people everywhere to repent. It's a universal command. Will you repent and embrace Christ and embrace what he's done for you? Will you endeavor to live day after day? Repenting of your sin and, and asking Christ to make you more like Him. One of my favorite hymns is Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. It was published in 1759. This is one of the verses. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. This is the offer before us today in the gospel. This is what's represented here in this meal. For it is in the meal, in the brokenness of the bread, and in, in the, the symbolic nature of, of, the, of the cup, 
symbolizing his bread, while we know there is something that happens in the Lord's Supper, where when we come in faith, we are nourished. It is a visible reminder of what Christ has done. It's a visible a sermon, if you will, proclaiming Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. It is for those who, by faith, have trusted and placed their faith in Christ and have repented of their sin. If you look in the bulletin, there are several prayers under the the back here. And I, I would encourage you, if you are struggling this morning, if you're searching for truth, there is a, a prayer that is there. There's also a prayer of belief. But I would say to you that this is for God's people. If you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, then this is for you. If you have, please don't do something that is not authentic for you. It will do you no good if you are not a believer. But maybe you're here this morning and you are, you know at one point, maybe you confess Christ and you endeavor to live for Him, but maybe you're consumed with doubts or wearies or fears. This is for you. Come and be reminded of what Christ has done for you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. In the same manner, he took the cup after the supper and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. Here at Westside, we celebrate communion by coming around, starting in the back and coming around and uh, taking the elements. You can partake right away or you can wait and, and we'll eat them together at the end, whatever, whatever works for you. If you're serving communion, will you come up? If you would like prayer, I'd be happy to pray with you, as would the, the elders would be glad to pray with you. Oh, Lord God, we commit these common elements to an, to an uncommon purpose. Lord, may you truly be present and, and feed our faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.